This show has already covered a few movies that obtained a cult status after bombing in theaters. We've also covered a few movies that kids were apt to repeatedly watch over and over again on home video. This film is both of those things. Little Nemo's first film adaptation was in 1911. It was directed by its creator, Windsor McKay, and it's gotten several other film adaptations with a Netflix production currently in um, production. <laughs> it has gotten stage adaptations, a video game, several video games, in fact, and even an opera. Still, for many, the 1989 film stands out. It's the thing their mom impulse bought out of a Kmart dollar bin when they were eight, or something that was just always available when they went to the children's section of the library. It's the movie they put on whenever they were bored during summer vacation, and nothing else can quite replicate that memory itself. Uh, we are talking about Little Nemo, Adventures in Slumberland. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me in this one is uh, my sister Cheryl. Welcome back to the show. Oh, yay. Thank you for having me back for this fever dream of a movie. Yes, and this fever dream of a movie was your pick. Before we go into all of the background details, why did you pick this one? I feel like we have a pretty good theme going of um, either doing very weird animated movies together or B-horror movies. So it's like, come on, we got to do another animated. And there were like cute butts in this one. Yeah, I found myself liking this a lot more than I thought I was going to. Right? I was like, I'm waiting for my, most of my childhood gets ruined by me rewatching it as an adult. So I'm like, something about this is going to be wrong. Yeah, this is held up weirdly well. I was not expecting that. Mm. Oh, before we go into that, the background of this film. Little Nemo was created by the pioneering cartoonist slash animator Windsor McKay in his 1904 newspaper strip Dream of Rarebit Fiend. The character began starring in a spin-off off strip the following year. It ran until 1911 in the New York Herald, then moved to William Randolph Hearst, New York American until 1914. McKay then revived the strip from 1924 to 1927. Little Nemo in Slumberland was a full-page weekly comic following the fantastical dreams of its protagonist, usually ending with him awakening in the last panel, falling out of bed more often than not. Little Nemo is considered a foundational cornerstone in the history of comics. McKay's experimental layouts, surreal imagery, adaptation of Art Nouveau archetypes, bold use of color, excellent pacing, and fine eye for detail still feel innovative and bold despite the fact that the comic is now over 100 years. Old. You're not super familiar with the comic that the movie is based on. For a lot of people, their only frame of reference for Little Nemo is the 1989 movie we're talking about. <laughs> I knew that there was a. I thought there was a children's book that was that it was based off of. I didn't know it was a comic strip. I mean, there were children's books as well. This has been a big multimedia franchise. Because I remember seeing it uh, referenced in a horror movie uh, within the past several years, actually. Now, gosh, we're old. And it also gets a shout out in Neil Gaiman Sandman. Happy. Yeah, in the in the second volume, the the kid when he's living in the dream world, it's it's structured like a little Nemo strip. Oh, fuck you, Sandman, for for messing with that sweet little angel baby. <laughs> yeah, Windsor McKay is also one of the founding fathers of animated film. His uh, 1914 short Gertie the Dinosaur is the first film to use keyframes, registration marks, tracing paper, animation loops, and the uh, Mutoscope animation viewer. Gertie is arguably the first cartoon character to have a distinct personality, and I assumed that I'd be covering McKay's work on this show eventually, but I figured I'd be doing one of the projects he directed himself, rather than something that was inspired by characters and made, like, decades after 
after he died. <laughs> Gerded the Dinosaur does get a cameo in Little Nemo, but one character that doesn't make it in is the Jungle Imp, who um, is basically exactly what that name implies. Which honestly was 100% what I was anticipating, like, finding in this movie. I'm like, some part of this movie went way over my head as a kid, and it's going to be awful as an adult, and it's going to be ruined forever. And yeah, for what actually gets in the film itself, time for the plot recap. The film opens with a young boy named Nemo, who is just dreaming about flying on a bed. The bed isn't walking yet. That's probably the most iconic shot that people know from Little Nemo, but not yet. He's just, it's just flying. However, that dream is interrupted by Nemo getting chased by a locomotive that even follows it underwater. It's, it's very persistent. <laughs> Upon awakening, he takes his pet flying squirrel Icarus to a parade welcoming a traveling circus. Nemo is excited to attend, but his parents are too busy to take him. That night, Nemo feigns sleepwalking in order to steal some pie his mother had left in the icebox and had forbidden him to eat. We can tell it was an icebox because it's made of wood. Yeah, he gets caught part of the way through, but he just commits to the bit and just <laughs> runs back to bed very unconvincingly. Afterwards, he then dreams about being approached by figures from the parade. The circus organist introduces himself as Professor Genius, <laughs> modest fellow that. Yeah, Cheryl's like, wait, is that really his name? <laughs> he informs Nemo that he's the emissary of King Morpheus, the monarch of Slumberland, which is a bit under the nose. The king is desperate to find a playmate for his lonely daughter Camille. Nemo is reluctant to interact with royalty of the opposite gender, but he and Icarus comply when presented with a box of cookies. It was a ruse. He's not a playmate. We'll get to that. But it's a ruse. She's not wrong. Nemo was taken to Slumberland in a dirigible, although they pronounce it differently. It made me self-conscious because <laughs> on this show, I have a long history of mangling words that I have read but not said out loud until I realize that I have to say them out loud. I think they say dirigible in other things. I don't think we're crazy. Yeah, maybe it's a Caribbean-Caribbean thing. Data, data, uh, data. Eventually, Nemo is offered a chance to pilot the giant blimp. (laughs) And along the way, they see a uh, clown man riding a raven named Flip, and he's a bit of a rascal. And Professor Genius tells Nemo not to associate with him, but he totally associates with him later on in the movie. bad at keeping his promises and he's like yeah totally that's the closest thing he has to a character arc more on that later the flip the aforementioned dirty circus man <laughs> essentially winds his way to, over to king morpheus and introduces him to him and morpheus is one of those old men who's really really invested in his model train set and he is drawn to resemble like a santa who never skips arm day <laughs> he's a greek santa he's you know, King Morpheus is the circus ringmaster in the waking world. This kind of has a Wizard of Oz thing where all the people in the circus parade are also in the uh, dream sequences. He reveals that he wishes Nemo to become his heir, aside from, you know, his actual daughter. The princess. And he presents him with a golden key that can open any door in Slumberland. However, King Morpheus cautions Nemo to never open the mysterious door with dragon insignia upon it. Well, yeah. That's going to come up later. Mortal Kombat, Ryan. Yeah, spoiler, Nemo totally opens that door. 
Nemo has then introduced the uh, Princess Camille, who is a bit on the haughty side, since she's a princess, refers to Icarus the Flying Squirrel as a rat, which offends Icarus considerably, especially when Nemo inadvertently also refers to Icarus <laughs> as a rat. Nemo is very susceptible to um, outside influence. But Camille thaws to the point where she gives him a, a tour of Slumberland. They then run into Flip again, who uh, angers a group of policemen, forcing him and Nemo to hide in a cave. The forbidden door happens to be in this cave, and surprise, surprise, Flip wastes no time in tempting Nemo to open it, although it's just going to be a peek. I'm going to maintain that the symbol on that door fucking looks like the symbol from Mortal Kombat. A little bit. Nemo's just going to take a peek, but when the scary shit happens and Flip just books the instant things go hairy. Nemo leaves the key in the door, which unleashes the Nightmare King, forcing Nemo to flee back to Morpheus' castle. Fortunately, Nemo's just in time for his coronation, a ceremony that, among other things, presents him with a magic scepter that just happens to be the only thing that can defeat the Nightmare King, although it is pointed out that Nemo is neither strong nor mature enough to wield the <laughs> scepter, and up to this point, the movie has not given us any reason to doubt that. Well, and he's got a memory that's worse than his flying squirrel companion. As King Morpheus and Professor Genius share a dance, the Nightmare King <laughs> crashes the party and like Rave. like a black version of the smooths that has like angry red eyes and kidnaps Morpheus. <laughs> Oh, that's a sea pony. Yeah, it's a sea ponies. Oh, I'm so ashamed. Uh, you should be. <laughs> the party goers quickly look for a scapegoat, prompting Nemo and Flip to instantly <laughs> in implicate each other. Immediately, they're the best of friends. Yeah, they're totally shameless. It turned on not even a dime. There was no turning. It was just right there. Yeah, Nemo awakens at home, but he notices that the scepter is still in bed, so he's not actually awake yet. And the house soon floods with seawater and ejects him into the ocean. Nemo is found by Professor Genius, who reassures Nemo that Flip is the culpable one, which neither Cheryl nor I buy. Nemo has responsibility for his actions. But good on him for also being like, no, no, I also screwed up. But he says also. He's the one with the key. He is the one with the key. Uh, when they return to Slumberland, Flip reveals that he has a map to Nightmareland, which he had teased earlier. Nemo's like, hey, wait a minute, don't you have a map to that land that Morpheus is being held in? He's about to be fired out of a <laughs> cannon into space, where Nemo's like, wait a minute, this guy is still useful to us. It's the only place where, um... <laughs> oh my gosh, sorry, no, that's a terrible reference, I'm not going to make it, but <laughs> where I spend my problems. Uh, yeah, Nemo, Icarus, Camille, Flip, and Professor Genius set out on a rescue mission on the tugboat, but they are instantly sucked into a whirlpool that deposits them in Nightmare Land. Now, once the group is there... Flip's map has been water damaged to the point where it's illegible, but Flip's trying to bullshit his way through because he's just that kind of guy. Uh, they encounter a group of shape-shifting goblins who offer them assistance because the fifth member of their party has been separated from them because of the Nightmare King. And out of 
out of the scores of people involved in the production of this film, one of them is Brian Froud, and his most obvious signature point is the design of the goblins, which very much look like Froud drawings. Oh yeah, they're 100 percent little. They should be falling around a David Bowie. Yeah. Now the Nightmare King sends them a swarm of anthropomorphic giant bats to attack the rescue party. Nemo tries to fight them off with the scepter, but he hasn't mastered the ability to use it quite yet and wakes up before he can do so. The goblins are in Nemo's bedroom because, once again, this is one of those fake you're-not-really-awake bits. And they take him back to Nightmare Land through a hole in the sky. They are soon imprisoned inside of Nightmare King's castle. He uh, demands that Nemo come out of hiding and present him with the scepter. And the Nightmare King just comes out completely as, like, discount Chernobog from Fantasia. <laughs> like, they're not even pretending to hide it. With a comb over. He had little puffs of hair. He's, yeah, he's got a little comb over. At this point... With the assistance of Icarus, who has, like, little crib notes of what the actual <laughs> magic in- incantation is. There's no explanation of where it came from, but fuck it, we're in dreamland. No, no, it came from the big, um, the one that was in prison. Oh, he, yeah. He was in the same cell as the, uh, as Morpheus. Oh, right, yeah, they find the, um, the, the fifth member of the party. I forgot to bring him up. And yes, he, he does have the crib notes. Yeah, he was a deus ex machina fall through the ceiling. I know what to do next, fellas. But anyways, Nightmare King uh, manages to get defeated through that. Now, Slumberland celebrates the victory over the Nightmare King. And as Nemo is being flown away in the dirigible... <laughs> Yeah, Camille takes him over New York City. They they get a nice little view of the Statue of Liberty, and they share a kiss just before Nemo awakens. Nemo apologizes to his mother for sneaking pie. This is the closest thing he has to a character arc. More on that later. And his dad is like, hey, we're going to the circus. And the final shot is of Nemo just like sort of dancing as he looks out the window and reflecting upon his adventure. And not getting ready for the circus. I know, he's just going to the circus in his little one-piece jammies that he went on his magical adventure with. Pajama, jamma! Shazamma! I knew there was going to be a Shazam in that incantation somewhere. I was just waiting for it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Development for this film. Little Nemo infamously spent the better part of a decade in development hell. All right. Uh, as I mentioned <laughs> while we were watching this film, Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland is essentially like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon for a millennial childhood. <laughs> so many things are connected through this thing. But yeah, it was the brainchild of producer Yutaka Fujioka, the head of uh, Tokyo Movie Shinsha Studio, which I'm going to refer to as TMS from here on out. <laughs> he personally flew to California in 1977 to convince McKay's descendants to sell him the film rights, because at that point... Little Nemo wasn't in the public domain yet. He approached George Lucas a year later, but Lucas didn't think Nemo had much of a character arc and declined to participate. Fujioka also approached Chuck Jones, but he wasn't interested either. I couldn't find a reason why. Possibly Jones was also wary of the lack of character arc, but Jones was also a very old man at this time and maybe didn't want to participate because he was basically retired. The Little Nemo film was announced as a joint American-Japanese production in 1982. A producer 
producer Gary Kurtz, who had worked on Star Wars and The Dark Crystal, supervised the American division and hired Ray Bradbury and Edward Summer to write screenplays. Kurtz would step away in 1984 to produce Return to Oz. And this film <laughs> gave you big Return to Oz vibes. You um, conflated the two of them in your subconscious for a while. Oh, 100%. And the, the scene where they're like on the bed in the water was very much that. Like I was waiting for them to dry up in the deadly desert. Yeah, there's no gump on the forehead, but yeah, you can <laughs> you can see parallels. The Japanese wing of the production was initially run by Heo Miyazaki and Izeo Takahara. I'd like to think that if you're listening to this episode, you already know who those two dudes are. <laughs> Miyazaki was frustrated by the lack of communication between the American and Japanese wings of the project. This comes up over and over again whenever I'm reading retrospectives of this. They were not good at fostering communication between the Eastern and Western wings of the development, and that caused a lot of consternation from both sides. Miyazaki also disliked Nemo's lack of a character arc. We keep coming back to that. And didn't like that all of the action took place in a dream world, which is the central conceit of the narrative. Right? Goodness. Yeah, he and Takahata left TMS, citing Little Nemo as the worst experience of their professional lives. And if you're familiar with Miyazaki's professional career, it is saying something that Little Nemo is the worst experience he ever had. Pilot films were produced in 1985 by Andy Gaskill, Yoshifumi Kondo, who later was a key animator on Kiki's Delivery Service, more on that later, Osamu Dezaki, and Tadeo Tsukioka. Brad Bird and Jerry Reese worked on the American side of the film for a brief spell. They consistently asked the animators what they were up to on occasion, and they always said that they are following Ray Bradbury's script. When they finally met Bradbury in person, Bradbury told them that he was scripting whatever the wonderful animators were drawing at the time. Oh my goodness. Bird and Reese soon left the project after the interview with Bradbury. Reese would pitch the Grave Little Toaster almost immediately afterwards. Ah! And he directed that. After exiting a similar quagmire during Disney's production of The Black Cauldron, (laughs) Bird co-wrote the screenplay for Batteries Not Included and became an instrumental figure in the development of The Simpsons on The Tracy Ullman Show and directed a number of key episodes in The Simpsons classic seasons. He would later direct The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, and Ratatouille. Oh my god! Yeah, I know. It's Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Fujioka had the screenplay revised by Chris Columbus, Moebius, John Canemaker, Richard Martini, and Summer Again, among many others. Uh, Richard Outen was hired to punch up Columbus's draft since Columbus was too busy working on adventures and babysitting. Disney animators Ken Anderson and Leo Salkin worked on individual segments, while Canemaker and Dark Crystal Labyrinth designer Brian Froud contributed visual ideas, most notably on the Goblins, as I mentioned already. Frank Thomas and the Oliver Johnston of Disney's Nine Old Men fame consulted, as did Looney Tunes animator Paul Julian, who is an assistant to Fritz Freeling. The Sherman Brothers of Mary Poppins fame were brought on to compose songs. Although, to be perfectly honest, I didn't find any of the songs to be super memorable in, in Little Nemo. I think you could have just lifted them right out without affecting the narrative all that much. Everybody talked over them. Yeah, yeah, they were all talking over them. This is the first anime that the Sherman Brothers scored, and I believe the only one, although they had written songs for American animated features such as The Jungle Book and the Hanna-Barbera version of Charlotte's Web, which is one of those things at our children's library that we'd periodically rent and is therefore tattooed in our memory banks. 
I suppose you could also count Mary Poppins as an animated feature. There are animated bits in it. Yeah, the little penguins. Almost no production headway was made on this film until 1988. At this point, the... I'm alive. <laughs> At this point, the crew posted the myriad slew of notes and ideas on a bulletin board compiled over through the decades and mercilessly whittled them down to a manageable size. Thomas and Johnston recommended William T. Hertz as the director of the American side, while TMS hired Sanrio director uh, Masama Hata of Hello Kitty fame to handle the Japanese side. This occurred just as TMS were finishing up their animation work on Akira, which is a very different film. <laughs> Once again, Kevin fucking Bacon of animation. So many goddamn cooks in the kitchen. Fever dream, though, like right in line. Well, let's go into the cast of this. I'm not going into the Japanese voice cast of this because we watched the American version of the film, and also there are only so many foreign names for me to mangle. <laughs> I really hate being the ugly American in this. Uh, so, Gabriel Damon as Nemo. He is best known for voicing Littlefoot in The Land Before Time and is essentially using the same voice in this. His voice? Yes, his actual voice. Uh, he does have minor live-action cameos in both RoboCop 2 and Newsies. He is thieving rapscallions in both. I have not seen what they call the RoboCop. RoboCop 2 is not very good. <laughs> he has bit parts in numerous 80s sitcoms, uh, including Punky Brewster, Different Strokes, Who's the Boss, and he also shows up in Star Trek The Next Generation. He's fine in most of them. He's an acceptable little kid actor. I'm Generally, I'm thankful whenever they hire a child to play a child and he's not irritating. He's fine in this. I have no notes, no complaints. I mean, Littlefoot. Yeah, in uh, 2006, he officially gave up Hollywood voice acting to become a real estate broker. 2006 is a pretty terrible time to be a real estate broker. The crash oh. is two years later. <laughs> the most recent article about, you know, where he is now, he seems to be in a comfortable spot. So, hey, he sells properties in Hollywood. He wasn't hit too bad, I guess. Yeah, next up we have Mickey Rooney as Flip. Rooney is the closest thing we have to a big-name celebrity voice actor for this. Maybe I'm being unfair to Mickey Rooney, but for the most part, just about everything I've seen him in is irritating. I know him mostly for, aside from his cameo in The Simpsons, being in a bunch of Judy Garland musicals where he's like negging Judy Garland to sleeping with him because she's not pretty enough for him, but maybe. And like, Judy Garland can do better dick than Mickey Rooney. <laughs> That's a sentence. I'm so <laughs> Yeah, and I can't remember what I know him from. I know it's a puppet movie, but I don't know which one. He's in one of the Rankin-Bass puppet movies. You think it's one of the Easter ones. I do think it's one of the Easter ones, but I'm not positive. Yeah, you thought he was the mailman, but I was like, no, that's Fred Astaire. I haven't seen those in so long. Watch, going to be in the fucking uh, Leprechaun Christmas Carol one. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I also saw him in, like, a 1930s version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, where they didn't follow Shakespeare's prose. You know, they thought they could improve upon Shakespeare dialogue, which, oops. Uh, generally speaking, I prefer Puck when he's a dirty old man. Whenever he's, like, a 12-year-old boy, which Mickey Rooney was, I just kind of want to punch him. I just can't imagine Mickey Rooney as young ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
Journaling. Well, he's a child actor, and a lot of his bitterness is stemming from that. As I also remember him, his most entertaining role for me isn't actually a performance. It's him doing commentary for, like, the DVD of The Twilight Zone for the one episode he's on. And he's just really cantankerous and bitter, and he's like, fuck you, why are you even making me talk about this thing I don't remember doing? And it's hilarious. I know, but then I think about Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is that's its own episode. Oh, boy. All right, then we have uh, Rene Aubergenoy as Professor Genius. Speaking of things I probably should have looked up before saying them out loud. He's my next, uh, my next alien. Yeah, he is best known for playing Odo on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and I have not watched any Deep Space Nine, but if you're a Trekkie, you probably know that guy. He's a, apparently a beloved supporting character on the show. Professor Genius is essentially a foil in this. He's long-suffering. He tells Nemo not to do the thing, and then Nemo does the thing. That's his role. Then we have Bernard Earhart as King Morpheus. Once again, Santa that never skips arm day. He has a big, booming voice, perfectly serviceable in the role. He seems to be a voice acting lifer. His next most prominent role, based on what I could find, was voicing Psykill in GoBots. I feel like I should know what GoBots is, but I don't. It's the Transformers, except they're lamer. Transformers when I was a kid. Speaking of Transformers, Bill Martin as the Nightmare King. He is an 80s voice acting lifer. He voiced characters in Transformers, Chuck Norris's Karate Commandos, and the real Ghostbusters. He is also the substitute shredder on later episodes of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they couldn't get Uncle Phil to voice the character anymore. This makes me so sad now that I know that that's him. I'm just like, yeah! Yeah, because now that you know that Shredder is Uncle Phil, you can't go back and watch those and be like, oh. Someone get that man some turtle soup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Leonardo needs to move back with his auntie and uncle in Bel Air. <laughs> Martin's fine as the Nightmare King. It's a very perfunctory role. Just about everybody is voicing a stock character in this. A lot of other lifers in the minor supporting roles. Trey McNeil's in this. Nancy Cartwright is in this. June Foray's in this because June Foray's in everything. <laughs> And for the release of this film, the Japanese cut was released on July 15th, 1989, and it opened against Kiki's Delivery Service, which, as I mentioned before, was animated and directed by several people who acrimoniously left Nemo's production. It bricked hard, and I can't help but assume that Miyazaki was at least a little bit delighted that his movie completely destroyed that little Nemo movie that was apparently the worst professional experience of his life. <laughs> that is Cheryl's theory. Everyone who was even tangentially involved in this little Nemo film, it, it was a succubus that took pieces of themselves into it, into this vortex. This billowing black hole of creativity. The American Cut was released three years later in only 579 theaters, which I'm assuming was simply to fulfill a contractual obligation. 11 minutes were cut in order to get a G rating. The opening credits are also shortened, forcing the opening song to play during the opening scene. I believe we watched a restored version on Amazon because that song is playing over the opening credits. Yeah. So yeah, so we got everything. I'm kind of wondering what they removed from the film, because for the most part, I didn't find anything super objectionable in it. Maybe they got rid of the dance instructions? 
Possibly. Yeah, there's a period where, uh, like, Nemo's being taught how to be a proper prince by various, like, royal tutors, including this lady who's very chubby, just keeps shoving Nemo's face into her boobs. Ample bosom. Ample bosom. Surprisingly, Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland got pretty good reviews overall. I mean, it's a beautiful movie. Yeah, they really got a lot of the Art Nouveau of the original comic strip, and by 1980 standards, very well animated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't see any sloppiness in it. It felt like they spent money on this thing, and I got the impression that the animators were really passionate about what they were doing. I mean, it's difficult to not get into animation without being at least a little bit of a fan of uh, Windsor McKay because he's just such a foundational figure in it. Most people praised the film for its visual inventiveness. Even the detractors were under the impression that it was very pretty. But yeah, it didn't stop it from bricking. Although, as I mentioned in my intro, it did find a voice on home video, uh, an audience on home video, rather. It's one of those movies that if a kid stumbled across it, they would watch it over and over again. You mentioned it to somebody of a certain age, and they're like, that was real? Yeah, it, it is a millennial touchstone, even if it does feel like a fever dream to some of them, which feels appropriate. Yep. Uh, Little Nemo also got, infamously enough, a video game tie-in. Two, rather. Capcom produced a Little Nemo platformer for the NES in 1990, which was released two years before the film got an American release. So not <laughs> everyone is under the impression it's actually a movie tie-in, which probably helped its reception. Because if you're a gamer, even in a minimal capacity, you know that film tie-ins have a bad reputation that is well deserved for the most part. Just get it done. It doesn't have to be good. It also got an arcade release the same year. Both versions are praised by video game historians, although the difficulty curve for the NES version is considered rather steep. I watched a playthrough of the NES and the arcade versions on YouTube, you know, the the previous night. The NES version, although Pete said he had it, I never played it myself. It feels an awful lot like Mega Man, which, you know, it's a late 80s Capcom game that isn't a beat-em-up or a fighting game, so that's not surprising. The arcade game is a lot weirder because it's a shooter where, like, Nemo is just, like, blasting various baddies with the scepter, and all of the the boss fights look like creatures that could have been in Contra. (laughs) There's an odd parallel to both this movie and the legacy of Windsor McKay in general. Sure. Or the fallout for this. Uh, Fujioka, who was basically the person who was responsible for bringing this to theaters in the first place, was forced into retirement shortly after the film's failure. TMS increased production on local anime in order to make up for all the money they lost. They also began supplying like grunt work animation to American TV productions, most notably for Warner Brothers on shows such as Tiny Toon Adventures, Animaniacs, and Batman the Animated Series. That dried up in the early 2000s due to increasing production costs, but don't feel too bad for TMS. They are currently producing anime for Case Closed, Lupin the Third, and Fruits Basket, which are all mega franchises. I'm not a huge manga person, but those are all big names. I know what those are. I've seen all of them. All of them, I believe you. And finally, that brings us to the themes for this film. Uh, The first one, as I've been seeding throughout my little narrative here, the importance of giving your protagonist a strong (laughs) narrative arc. Come on, he barely lived. 
The main character doesn't always have to be a dynamic figure. Many great stories feature static characters in the title role. Still, the main character should have a goal. They should want something in order to be compelling to an audience. He wanted pie, Ryan. Sleepwalking in order to get pie and then feeling sorry afterwards is... I would say a fairly weak character arc. I do not blame Miyazaki or Lucas or possibly Chuck Jones for feeling that that could have been broadened a bit. I mean, he learned how to own his mistakes. Yeah, I guess. That that works if we're talking about a single-page comic strip from 1905, but for even a fairly briskly paced 95-minute feature, you could have done a little more than that. However, that brings me to my next point. Sometimes weird visuals are enough. <laughs> Charles agrees. <laughs> More than a few Little Nemo strips are just a pretext for Windsor McGay to render elaborate Art Nouveau vistas, or just to play with panel sizes, or to see if he could play with a timing effect on certain things. And you can definitely see how he would eventually develop those ideas in the newspaper strip to his very early animated films, although he said that he was primarily inspired by little flip books that his son made. Aww. Although McKay claimed that he invented animation, which he didn't. He has a couple of immediate predecessors, although it's hard to imagine the history of animation without his contribution. I am not an advocate of great man history. I do not think you can credibly tie things to one person. That being said, if you can tie things to one person, you could do worse than McKay. Uh, yeah, for an undiscriminating audience of young children, Little Nemo has far more showmanship than most other animated kitty fair produced at the same time. <laughs> we almost did TJ Sparkle's failed pilot, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to voice that upon an episode at some point or another. But this makes me recall one of the earliest episodes of this podcast where Sylvan and I discussed the My Little Pony movie. I still love that movie with Oh, no, no, we're talking about the feature-length one where they fight the schmooze. Oh. Not that that doesn't have interesting visuals as well, but Little Nemo more so. This one feels like certain things are in it that aren't in My Little Pony, such as effort. Fire, fire, Escape from Midnight Castle. Yeah. All right, next thing, somewhat related to the other things I was discussing, broad strokes. Little Nemo's plot is super basic, even by the standards of its intended demographic. This is possibly because the film was meant to be marketed to both Japanese and American audiences simultaneously. If there is anything that we can take away from the fairly recent recent broadening of film marketing is that when a movie is meant to reach as wide an audience as possible, and in the past couple of decades, that includes an international audience where each individual aspect of the demographic has its own individual cultural needs that don't necessarily cross over. Movies that are meant to reach an audience of that vast scope tend to be simplified to the point where it is just about as archetypical as you can get it. Like, Chinese audiences like giant robots and orange gasoline explosions just as much as Brazilian audiences do, or American audiences, or Filipino audiences, or Mexican, or Norwegian, or what have you. And you can see evidence of this in most franchises that have broad international box office appeal. Fast and the Furious is an obvious example. The MCU as well. Star Wars, although those have been struggling to find an audience
audience in China, based on what I can read. Transformers is pretty clear on that front. They're all about family, Ryan. <laughs> They're about family. And also ridiculous physics-defying car chases. That's, that's what family is, Ryan. <laughs> and then in Transformers, those ridiculous cars transform into robots that punch each other. With feelings. They have feelings. And also robot fists. That's what feelings are, Ryan. And then giant shark. <laughs> okay, that's the full extent of my notes. Is there anything you'd like to add to anything I say before uh, we wrap this up? Yeah, I'm going to defend the a little bit. I think that even if it was accidental, a lot of the like looser, vaguer, probably lazy aspects of the storytelling make it definitely feel a lot more like a dream. So, I mean, that side of it to me, that sort of like surreal aspect, I think is part of the reason why it's such a fun and beautiful movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it does transfer enough of uh, McKay's visual inventiveness to the screen. And if nothing else, it gives you a lot of interesting things to look at. Oh, yeah. Even if, like a lot of other 80s movies that aren't directed by... All of the greats from our childhood. Even then, that is enough to carry it over to, if not greatness, then at least being memorable. Yep. Okay, if there's nothing else, I believe that is one more episode in the can. Thank you for listening. Join us next time.